welcome to Anxiety and the Artist, the podcast that explores artist's relationship with anxiety, offering insight and inspiration. I'm your host, Allison Chef. My guest today is Kathleen McGuire Gaines. Kathleen is a former dancer turned writer and a mental health advocate for dancers. As a dancer, Kathleen trained at the Pittsburgh Ballet Theater School and the San Francisco Ballet School in their pre-professional divisions. She also spent summers at the School of American Ballet and the Chautauqua Festival program. Kathleen has written more than 150 articles on dance for Dance Magazine, Point, Dance Spirit, and Dance Teacher magazines. In 2018, she created Minding the Gap, an advocacy organization dedicated to mental health being regarded with the same seriousness as physical health in dance culture. Kathleen, welcome to the show. Hi, Allison. I'm thrilled to be here. So tell us a little bit about your background as a performer and your relationship with anxiety. Sure. Yeah. Um, well, so I started dancing very young, like most people did. I was, you know, in classical ballet and I left home. I'm originally from Binghamton, New York. And I left home when I was 14 years old to train in the pre-professional program at Pittsburgh Ballet Theater School. Um, and then when I was 17, I left, um, for Chautauqua or goodness. I left for San Francisco. Sorry. Um, I spent my summers in Chautauqua, but, uh, you know, I was never a tremendously confident dancer. Um, I had a really hard time valuing myself, um, just as an individual without confirmation of my value from the people at the front of the room. Hmm. Um, that is a really, kind of dangerous and common thing among dancers, I think, Mm -hmm. um, because we're, we're very approval seeking, I think. Uh, so I really, when I was in San Francisco, I sustained my first real injury, which was a stress fracture, um, to my second metatarsal, which is a very classic point shoe injury. Um, you know, and I had been doing really, really well and things have been going really well. I was in the highest level. I was, you know, in company rehearsals and, um, and then I just kind of disappeared, you know, Mm. I was, I was hurt. Um, they had a policy at the time where I had to observe all of my classes that I was missing and I had to like write down all the corrections and combinations at the front of the room, um, which was torture. Mm. (laughs) Um, because I, I just had to kind of sit there and watch my, my peers keep going. Right. Um, so I, that's when I, I dealt with my first major depression and, you know, certainly there was anxiety involved in it as well. I think it took me so long to understand that what I went through was a depression that to understand the nuance between depression and anxiety, like was, was not even a thing for me. (laughs) Right. They're very closely related. Absolutely. And, um, so I, you know, I had never really heard a teacher talk about mental health before. Um, I, I, I don't know, like we just didn't talk about that stuff in the studio. So, you know, I just thought I was weak. I wasn't strong enough. I wasn't good enough. Um, and so I, I didn't really have any well-developed coping mechanisms, partly because I left home so young and spent right. all of that time in a dance environment where we didn't talk about mental health. Right. And, you know, so I learned my coping mechanisms from my peers, you know, disordered eating and 
um, drug and alcohol abuse and, um, you know, all kinds of things that, that were not serving me well. Um, so I, it took me, it, it probably took me 10 years to fully understand that I quit dancing because of untreated depression. Um, it was through the process of writing about dance and interviewing dancers and interviewing psychologists who work with dancers that I had this kind of realization about myself. And, you know, right as I started kind of tiptoeing into my thirties, I, I kind of stopped with the excuses, you know, it was like, well, I was really tall. Cause you get asked all the time, why'd you stop dancing? It's, it's a reasonable question when somebody's dedicated so much of their life to it. Right. Um, so I, you know, I stopped, I stopped making excuses and I just started looking at people and saying, uh, I had untreated depression. I was depressed. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, and it was kind of amazing to see what that opened up, you know, in terms of people's reactions. Right. Um, and as I started dance or as I started writing about dance and dance magazine, um, I wrote more and more about mental health and became more and more aware of the incredible weight that it carries, um, on dancers' shoulders. Um, and in 2017, I wrote the article, um, why are we still so bad at addressing dancers' mental health, which, um, quickly went viral and is one of the most read articles the magazine has published. Um, and honestly, the, the outpouring of support and concern that I had after that article came out is why I founded Minding the Gap. Amazing. Since we're there, can you tell us about Minding the Gap? Ah, absolutely. Um, yeah, so I, uh, yeah, it was amazing when after that article was published, dancers and um, mental health professionals, people from all over the country and, and the world were reaching out to me, sharing their stories with me and expressing solidarity. And, and many of them saying like, okay, like we're with you. What do we do now? <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, you know, because in the article I shared my personal experience and I also kind of shared like, look guys, there's some really simple stuff we can do to start changing the culture that isn't expensive and is, doesn't take a lot of time and we could just do these things. So, um, I, I guess I rang the bell. <laughs> I created a call to action that I didn't necessarily know I was doing. Um, okay. but after hearing all these stories and just everything I've learned over, over my own time as a dancer and following, I really felt like this has to change. And if it's not going to be now, when will it be? And if it's not going to be me, then who will it be? You know, it just, it just had to happen. Like it, 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 it wasn't even a question. It was like, okay, I guess this is what's next. Um, and mining the gap at this point, is we're, we're predominantly focused. We're still very young. We're very focused on research and advocacy right now. Um, so we are in the process of launching a large research project, um, with dancers at Point Park University. Um, and to gain some of the data that I am so hungry for on the well-being of dancers, you know, things like depression and anxiety, um, the, you know, there, there are amazing, amazing researchers out there doing important research on dancers. Um, I find 
a lot of it is focused in eating disorders and perfectionism, which is very mm-hmm. important. But mm-hmm. some of these like really fundamental things, like rates of rates of depression, we can't necessarily speak to very clearly. Um, and I really want to to address that because I am often confronted with people who don't necessarily want to believe me. <laughs> right. Right. That this, that this is a big problem. <laughs> Okay. Um, So you mentioned that there are some simple things that could be changed. What would you like to see change both at the educational level and at the professional level? Mm -hmm. Yeah. uh, So many things. So (laughs) (laughs) uh, at the educational level, which I think is a really, really important moment because when we look at the general population, you know, people are f- most likely to experience their first mental illness in their late teens and early 20s. And these are really foundationally important times for dancers, right? This mm-hmm. is when you're in your pre-professional program, you're getting ready to enter a conservatory program at a university, or you're maybe signing your first contract, or you've just broken out on your own and you're freelance, like who knows, right? But mm-hmm. it's kind of truth time. It's it's a really stressful period of time in anyone's life and in particular in a dancer's life. Um, so I think it's really important that we look at, at that that area, that time period of, of education and like the evolution of a dancer. Mm-hmm. Um, I think at the very most basic level in education, dance schools and institutions should regard the mental well being of their dancers as equal to the physical well being of their dancers. So even in the time that I've been writing about dance, I've seen incredible, incredible um, progress made with, you know, physical therapy and athletic trainers. And, you know, now everybody's like Pilates and gyro and like all this stuff, like cross training is a thing now. You know, when I was dancing, dancers were still afraid to cross train. Like, we're like, oh my God, I can't do that. My thighs will get big, you know? (laughs) Right, right. We're starting to accept kind of the physical science of making us better and we need to do the same on the mental side. So if if a, a dance school, for example, has a relationship with an ortho and a physical therapist, why can't they also have a relationship with a mental health professional? That doesn't mean that that person's on staff. It doesn't mean that they're paying them. It just means that they have a referral relationship with them, right? A cons- you know, a consulting relationship with them even. And I find that that's, that's a big lift. Um, and then in many cases in the schools that have done that, that have that relationship, the dancers don't know how to reach that person. Like they, they, you know, they, they put this person in the, um, in the handbook and then they're like, oh yeah, we have a, we have a mental health professional. There are phone numbers in the handbook. And I'm like, oh yes. When you're a 16 year old in mental distress, you're like, where's my handbook, right? Like (laughs) get me my handbook. (laughs) And you know, one of the simplest things I tell them to do is put that person's name and phone number on the bulletin board next to the schedule. Like they shouldn't have to ask you for it. They're not 
going to ask you for it. In fact, in 2017, um, Minding the Gap, we did a um, we did a survey on the Dance Magazine website, and we had around about 900 respondents. So it was a really big response to this survey. Okay. And when I asked them, does your school or company have a psychologist or other mental health professional that dancers are referred to? 75% said no. Wow. 13% said maybe, which is oh, like, God. just no. I mean, like, right. Right. Um, and then, and then to follow that, I said, okay, if yes, do you know how to reach that person directly? And 37% said no. So mm. of the, of the 12% of 900 dancers, I'm not going to even try to do the math, of the 12% of the 900 dancers, 37% don't know how to actually get a hold of that person. And then another key component to this is I also asked, if you're having a mental health challenge, would you feel comfortable reaching out to your teacher or director? So 41% said not at all. Like, no way, Jose. Hmm. 32% said that they were unlikely to. Only 10% of dancers said that they would definitely reach out to their te- to a teacher or director if they're having a mental health issue. Wow. So if you're the keeper of this phone number, it might as well not exist. Right. <laughs> so I think that's really simple kind of baseline, small, simple thing. Get it, you know, create a relationship with a mental health professional if they have never worked with dancers before, invite them into the studio to watch classes, like invite them to become part of your community, send them tickets to performances so that they'll come see performances and then make their information freely and widely available to the dancers. Um, and you also asked about companies. I think in a way, in many ways, I think I give the schools a little bit less flack, I suppose. Um, Mm -hmm. uh, but with the companies, I mean, especially some of these companies are AGMA companies. Like I, 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 it baffles my mind that, that the investment in mental health isn't happening. And to be honest, the baseline of the things that they need to accomplish is, is essentially the same. Mm -hmm. Coming up, the effects of shame-based motivation and coping during COVID-19. When it comes to teaching, I've observed a lot of tough love, shame, negativity as tools for getting results, which seems abusive to me. What would you say to that? I think dance very widely traditionally has used shame-based motivation to try to see results in dancers. Um, Now, there's no shortage of amazing research that shows that shame-based motivation is poor. Mm -hmm. Um, Literally just read anything by Brene Brown and you'll figure it out, (laughs) right? Like, (laughs) and I, you know, if I I could sit here and quote her on it forever, but um, it, what what we see with with shame based motivation is that you you enact a fight or flight response, right? So, and I'm not a mental health professional. This is just what I learned from them, for the record. But you know, you enact a, a fight or flight response, and so you may get an immediate result. Like 
yelling at a child in the dance class or, or, um, this is something that, that would happen. Say the teacher can tell that you didn't pick up the combination. So they'll call you to the front of the room to, and say, Oh, Oh, Kathleen, can you come demonstrate the combination please? And they know you don't know it. Mm-hmm. The, the whole purpose of doing that is to shame you, to make you embarrassed in front of your peers because you didn't pick up the combination. When perhaps when a dedicated student in your class isn't picking up the combination, you should be wondering what else is going on in their lives. <laughs> like, right. right. Um, but I think dance is a, a space, especially in classical ballet, which is the, the field I was in, um, that really prides itself on how little it's changed. Um, you know, there's, <laughs> it's like, it, it literally, I, I mean, the number of times, well, this, that's just how it's done. That's how it's been done for hundreds of years. And, you know, you kind of sit there scratching your head and I'm like, that's a good thing. Like, right. <laughs> we right. haven't reevaluated this for hundreds of years. <laughs> um, but I think what happens is because the path to becoming a dance teacher, like what, what, um, qualifies you for that position is having been a dancer and there's very little disruption in between, right? Like my daughter's preschool teacher has a bachelor's degree in, you know, early education and mm-hmm. has gone through all of these things. It, none of that exists. I mean, not none of that. It rarely exists for a dance teacher. And for that reason, whatever has been normalized for that dancer, once they become the teacher is just seamless, seamlessly passed down. Right. So if abusive behavior is normalized for that dancer and is seen as, well, this is how it's done. This is how it's always been done. This is how I was taught. This is how they got results out of me. They don't even know they're being abusive. Like they think they're, I I think some of them genuinely think that they're doing that, that young student, some kind of a service. Like I hear all the time, like, well, we have to get them ready for how tough it is. And I'm like, if, if treating a 14 year old in a shame-based abusive manner is what needs to happen in order to prepare them for a professional career, I would argue that you are putting all of your energy in the wrong direction. Right. Like, like, like <laughs> what? Like, <laughs> it's just like, and there's this idea that somehow that makes dancers like better, stronger, grittier, and it's it's simply not true. And I think a lot of it comes down to understanding the difference between the expectation and like you can hold a student to a high standard, a very high standard. Dance has high standards, and that's one of the reasons it's such an incredible art form, right? Mm-hmm. That's fine. The standard in and of itself is not is not usually abusive. The only time in which I would argue that is that is not the case is, is with body related things. But when we're talking about like technique and 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 you know becoming a talented, strong, artistic dancer, like the standard isn't necessarily abusive. So the standard in and of itself is high enough. Like you don't need to make it harder to get there. Just just try to help them get there. Right, right. If there's a, a dancer or an artist listening right now that's experiencing anxiety or depression, what is your advice to them? So first, I think it would be 
to know that one, that they're not alone. Um, you know, I've been speaking very openly about my, my mental health for a long time. I've never regretted it. Um, I have been met with incredible support and admissions of struggle from people that I thought were untouchable statues. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Um, so they're not alone. There's nothing wrong with them. Like there's nothing wrong with you. Um, you are not weak. You are a person living through an impossible time. And dance was hard enough already. <laughs> Pre-COVID <laughs> pandemic. Right. Pre, um, you know, uh, police brutality. Like pre-United States election. <laughs> like before all of these things, dance was hard, you know, Um and so I think they need to understand that it is completely normal to go through periods of time that are, that are difficult. It's not that you need support, you deserve support. And I hope that they will seek that support out. One of the most common questions that I get when I speak with dancers is how do I know I need to see a therapist? And my my answer to that question is you just asked that question so so you've answered yourself you know right. um we need to destigmatize and eliminate this idea that the only reason to go to therapy is because you're like suicidal or because you are a total mess like it is okay to go to therapy just to support yourself like right. you don't have to be in a terrible place to be in therapy <clears throat> and so I think that's the other thing for them to remember is that like therapies for everyone. It's wonderful. I highly recommend it. Um, it could be the nicest thing you do for yourself. <laughs> <laughs> so what, what tools have you found useful in addition to therapy? What tools have you found useful in mitigating your own anxiety and depression? That's a good question. Um, I think like specifically as it relates to dance um and kind of the parallels to dance so i would say like my my perfectionistic striving in my career and and things like that um i think one thing that i've learned from the mental health professionals i work with is and a big thing is in diversifying identity i think when you ask dancers who are you the, i think most a lot most of them will say i'm a dancer Mm -hmm. And, you know, I work with this fabulous psychologist named Brian Goonan, who um, often when we're working with dancers, will will reply to that like, okay, good. Now, please write down the other 11 things that you are. Right. You know, like it, it doesn't serve you or your mental health to tie yourself completely to what you're doing, right? Like you're, you're a human being, you're a person you're complex. There's a lot to you. Um, you know, I, I'm very proud of the fact that I'm a contributing writer to dance magazine, but that is just one of the many facets of who I am. And one of the many facets of the things that I do. And if I never wrote for them again, I'd be very sad, but you know, it would open up a space in my life to do another thing that maybe I never thought I would do. Right. Um, so I think we really need to honor 
the whole picture of who we are. And Dr. Goonan asks dancers to write down those 12 things and like actually like put them up on your wall or your refrigerator and look at them every day and ask yourself when the last time was that you honored number seven. When was the last time that you, you know, if, if you're a, a person who loves animals, right? Like when was the last time you went down to the shelter to walk some of the dogs? Like that would make you feel good. It would connect you to something that you identify as part of who you are. So right. I think that's really key. Um, I think another one is, I think often dancers are, are pretty bad at setting goals. <laughs> I know I was, <laughs> you know, what's your goal? And, you know, little, little Katie with her tight little bun would be like, I'm going to be a principal dancer with New York city ballet. You know, like uh-huh. that's, that's not a goal. <laughs> <laughs> that's a, that's a dream. That's an aspiration. That's lovely. But like, if I'm tying my self-worth to that goal, um, that's not going to go well. <laughs> you know, I mean, right. and there's so many things in that that are completely out of my control. It doesn't matter how skinny I am or how good I am or any of these things. We all know that like the way the cards get dealt at the end of the day could be that the day that I auditioned, they really needed a redhead, you know, like, right. It, 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 it's, there's, you can't control this. Right. And it's subjective. So I think people and dancers and people in general, like, I think it's important to ask yourself, like, it's, yes, it's good to have a goal, but is it achievable? Is it in your control? And like, is, is there a reasonable timeline within, with which you can, you can do this? Um, so I think those are two really big things um, that I think dancers and non-dancers alike can can take. And I try very hard to ground myself in those things. So dance performance as we know it has been shut down for the past six months. Um, but I think from that, a lot of interesting things have emerged. So what creativity have you seen emerge in dancers that have been forced to think outside of the traditional performance dance box? Absolutely. Um, I, I, I really do think this is one of the, I don't know if I want to call it a silver lining, but um, it's one of, it's one of the gifts that this, that this thing we're all surviving <laughs> will, uh, will give to dance maybe um, especially in ballet. I think Um you know, all of a sudden it's like the only way these dancers can, can quote perform, uh, is, is by in video. So it's been really cool to watch dancers in quarantine, like with their roommate or whatever choreograph for the first time. And mm -hmm. it's really cool to see that their voice is maybe quite different and their movement looks quite different than what I'm used to because it's their own voice now. Right. Um, I think it's really cool to see how good some of them are at video editing. I'm like, what? Like, <laughs> like maybe you found, maybe you found career number two, because this is really, really well done. And I know that you just did it on zoom on your computer, you know, right. um, they are being forced to think differently and it is allowing dance. To, it will allow dance to reach, I think, new people. Um, mm -hmm. 
you know, like for example, the the viral video of the the beautiful women from Dance Theater of Harlem that just went vi- went viral like last week, I think, it's mm-hmm. gotten like six million views. You know how fantastic, like how wonderful that the Dance Theater of Harlem is getting that kind of attention, and it's because people are on their screens and they're watching all kinds of stuff, you know, right. and and who has now been exposed not only to dance but dance with black dancers because of that video. Um, So I think that there's a lot of, a lot of opportunity for dance to innovate through this because dance has to innovate through this to survive. And I actually think that innovation is, is pretty overdue in a lot of cases. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) So they're forced to the brink. Like, (laughs) yes. Representation matters. Diversity matters. Mm -hmm. A lot of things are changing, I think, for the positive in that respect. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Or at least beginning to. Beginning Um, to change. Yeah. Yeah. At least least people have had time to sit and get a little bit angry and talk about it. Um, Uh You know, there have been some victories, um, I believe. So there were, I think, I don't want to mess this up. There were a few of the dance... um, uh, dancewear companies that were selling shades of nude, um, you know, to brown, mm-hmm. uh, brown nude, all the nudes, instead of just arbitrarily assigning one color as nude, um, tights and point shoes. And there were a few companies that hadn't done it yet. And early on um, in the pandemic, following the murder of George Floyd, uh, the, you know, they were just swarmed with demands and now the majority of them do. I mean, that's a, that's a pretty big deal. It's sad that it took till 2020 for it to happen, but you know, unfortunately I think part of the reason it happened is because people were sitting in captive and bored and paying attention. Right. Right. Kathleen, thank you so much for being here today and for sharing your story and your mission. It was an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. That's our show for today. Thanks for listening, and thanks to my guest, Kathleen McGuire Gaines. For more information on Kathleen's work, including Minding the Gap, head on over to our website, anxietyandtheartist.com. If you like what you heard, tell a friend. And until next time, be healthy and stay creative. Anxiety in the Artist is produced by Grost Productions and recorded at Homestead Studios. Music and engineering is by Bosco Chef. This podcast represents the opinions of Allison Chef and her guests. The content here should not be taken as medical advice. The content here is for informational purposes only. And because each person is so unique, please consult your healthcare professional for any medical questions.